Here we go. I, that's important to me. I want this to be a discussion-oriented class. I'm never going to be in a hurry. If I don't get done with my PowerPoint, it doesn't matter. We've got some very astute Bible students in our class that are more than capable of binding and loosing biblically. And that's going to become the, a key important issue. We were to talk about some things before the service started that... Um, it's really easy to just appeal to church authorities rather than to Scripture. And we believe that to bring forth valid implications and applications of Scripture is a biblical idea of how to prophesy. And the prophecy has to be judged. And it's judged as to whether the application or implication or idea that we get from Scripture necessarily follows from that scripture. And so the first job is exegesis, understanding the author's meaning. And the second is in the area of application, and it's just as crucial. I got a good compliment from Eric. I sent him my PowerPoint that I'm going to use for the sermon. And he says, the applications necessarily follow from the text. That's a nice way of saying good. This is what it should do. But you can judge that, and not just church authorities. So let me give a little. We started in Acts 2.41. I'll read this and pray, and then I'll go down to where we were the last time I taught. Um, Okay, here we are. Um, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessed privilege of gathering together under your word and the authority of scripture as your called out ones. And may we encourage one another and share the truth as we open the scriptures together. And may what we do be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have here a command, and then we have a, dis- uh, a mention of what happened. They were baptized. They were baptized, the ones who received his word. There's some interesting words in the Greek that that I've been looking at this last week on received or welcomed. Or, there's a couple key words. One of them is decomai, and the other one is lambano. And you have proslambano, paralambano, geis decomai. There's all these prefixes they use in Greek. The idea is to welcome or to bring into one's life. Now, we already did last time, Matthew 28, which is command in the Great Commission to go make disciples. Baptizing was one of the things. And then there's, so there's a command. As we said, and I've been doing a lot of Luther research because I'm going to disagree with him quite vociferously on the doctrine of baptism. And he goes off the rails in his exegesis on baptism. It's unbelievable. As good as he is on justification, he's that bad on baptism. And so we're going to do some radio about that. And 
always, always, if you're going to be a theologian, always do primary source research. Okay, and so I have on my Lagos system the entire complete works of Luther. Many, 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 many volumes, all searchable as a big group, as a library. Works of Luther, search. And there's a lot of entries under baptism, but it's primary source. It's what Luther actually wrote, not what it says in the Book of Common Prayer, which may or may not be an accurate representation. So that's how we proceed. Now let's go down to where we were, which was right here. And we were in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul um, was saying this. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, we need to think about this seriously. Now, a lot of false implications have been brought forth from these passages in 1 Corinthians, where Paul rebukes the Corinthians, and his concern is their sectarian ways. In other words, they would say, I'm, I'm of the sect of Apollos. Or they might take pride in who baptized them. So when Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you, we need to know why did he say it and what implications can we draw from that? Well, he said it because they'd be saying, I'm of the Paul sect. And in reality... When we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're baptized by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who instituted the ordinance. And the person doing so, and we talked about this last time, is not a big issue. And so they were trying to make it that, and that's the main thing. But I think we can draw some other implications so you can judge whether I'm doing so correctly. When he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he talks about that, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be void. If you look in the context, God has chosen the foolishness used ironically of the message preached to save those who believe. Is it valid? I'm asking you, the judge prophecy, is it valid? For me to say, if baptismal regeneration were true, why would Paul say God did not send me to baptize? Because he wanted everybody to be regenerate. That's why he preached the gospel. Okay? Is that a valid implication, or am I reading into it just to refute Luther? Judgy. Uh, Brian's got the wireless mic and it can go anywhere in this room and we're anxious to try it. I believe that that's a valid implication. Pat, you seem to have an opinion. Say so on the mic. I think it's a valid um, premise. Yeah, he distinguishes the baptism, baptizing from preaching, doesn't he? Yes. And the preaching is where you find the means God uses to save the lost. 
and baptism would be important, but it's an ordinance that would follow redemption, atonement, through the preaching and hearing of the word. That's exactly what happened in the case of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Now, yes, uh, bring the mic over to Norm, please. Um, I would like you to talk about the idea of the household baptism. And, I mean, we see it here. We see it in, uh, you know, where where uh, Paul baptized the jailer and his whole f- household. And yes, so, I, have, so the, I have every verse where that yeah, is mentioned. So, so the assumption by many people, and I guess it is an assumption, is that we're we're assuming then that the, everyone in the household was adults and were believers that were baptized, and that if there were any children, they were not baptized. I mean, there's yeah. Okay, let's discuss that, Norm. Uh, actually, just for my show and tell, this is all material that I printed out of all the dozens of entries in Luther on baptism. So here's my primary source research. Norm was asking you about household baptism, and that's a very valid, important question, so let's go to it right now. And I have passages here that I, um, on that, and you can decide if you want to turn to them or not, I'll read them. Um, Here's some, uh, if you want to jot these down, it'll be the cases in Acts where there was mention of baptism. Acts 8.36, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Remember, he was reading Isaiah 53, and Philip preached the gospel to him. Okay. And then verse 37, which is weakly attest, poorly attested in the Greek manuscript, so some is in brackets. If you believe with all your heart, you may. I wouldn't make that my main proof text because if it's not in the earlier manuscripts. But verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. So there was a guy who believed that through the preaching of Philip and was immediately baptized because he believed. Now, we could, you know, verse 37 would be handy for us and what we believe, but I'm uh, going to resist the ending of Mark, so I don't want to be a hypocrite and use this because that's what helps. Luther uses Mark 16, 16 constantly. Believe and is baptized to be saved. You're not baptized, you're not saved, you're not regenerate. Um, there wasn't, I don't believe that that's legitimate any more than drinking poison or handling snakes or uh, some of these things at the end of Mark. I don't, I think it was added on, I don't think it's inspired scripture. And I'm just saying that. If you want to be mad, be mad. I've I already got 10 years of people mad because I'm using something besides King James. I don't care anymore. I'm old. (laughs) Be mad all you want. I just want to get it right for the church. Okay? And so I'm going to be consistent and say, well, verse 37 would be handy, but, you know, really, I don't want to be inconsistent. Let's go forward. I'll just give you some of these verses. 
So there was a man, obviously, he was an adult. He believed the gospel. He was baptized. And they went down into the water. Baptizo, the, the word means to dip or immerse. It's also used in the Greek for taking a piece of cloth that, that you want to dye a different color and, and dipping it down into the dye and back out. And the cloth is different when it comes out and it stays that way. I think that's an interesting analogy. Okay, um, Brian? Wouldn't things, <clears throat> wouldn't things back then be similar to the way they are now in the sense that there's lots of people getting baptized today that put, put their salvation in the fact that they were baptized. Paul, I'm sure, baptized households, and there were people that weren't truly saved. Uh, that, I mean, how, that's how what we're Paul, trying to figure out. That's, yeah. that's a conclusion. I'm not so sure I'm willing to do that. I know your name, but I'm losing it here. Shannon. Thomas. Thomas. Shannon will work for today, though. That's fine. No, I never. You know, I give up on me. I just turned 63. That's my excuse. I'm sticking with it. Go ahead. I'm the other Dutchman. All right. I, so I just read this uh, passage recently, and what I want to understand is, I mean, it appears as if uh, uh, Philip, is tr- becomes trans-temporal after the baptism. Yeah, how he got there and left seems supernatural. So what, what, does, uh, uh, what specifically is the Word of God trying to tell us? We only, we only see what it says here, but I would say this. It's a good example of the fact in Luke Acts, the theme is... The Holy Spirit comes upon people. They speak for God powerfully. And that from the very beginning of Luke, and I always interpret Luke Acts as a two-volume work, which it is. The beginning of Luke, God's going to bring salvation to unexpected places. And so this Ethiopian is an interesting person. It was an Ethiopian that pulled Jeremiah out of a cistern when Israel rejected Jeremiah. The king wouldn't listen to him, threw him down in a mucky cistern to drown to death in mud. And an Ethiopian pulled him out. I don't know if there's any significance to it, but God goes to great length to bring the gospel. And it's interesting also that the number one objection you get from people who want to object to Christianity who know enough about the exclusive claims and say, well, what about the heathen off somewhere that never heard? Okay, they, they throw that one up as if it were a fatal flaw in our gospel. Well, as a matter of fact, God's not obligated to save anybody. Who are we to tell God how he has to do things? Secondly, I would say to the one who throws that in my face, which I've had that happen a lot, well, it's too late for you because you just heard from me, so let's talk about that. <laughs> That's a bigger problem. Okay. Thank you. Now, let's let's get to some of these verses here. <clears throat> Acts, it went down in the water. Then there's Paul in Acts 9.18. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, 
he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. That was the apostle. So here you have the confrontation on the road to Damascus, the blindness, the falling off of the scales on his eyes, which I think was God symbolizing his blindness had been cured in the sense that now he saw the truth of the gospel. He used to persecute Christians. So in Acts 9, you have Paul baptized. And then Acts 10.47, if you want to jot this down, this one becomes very interesting to me because I'm teaching Galatians and Peter's lapse in Galatians. But Peter, through a series of supernatural events, you know, with angels and visions and the sheet coming down with unclean animals, Peter preached the gospel to the household of Cornelius, which were God-fearing Gentiles, but uncircumcised. That's what a God-fearing Gentile was. They were attracted to the Jewish law and way of life, but didn't want to be circumcised, so they couldn't really be Jews. They received the Holy Spirit. They believed the gospel. And then it says here, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who receive the Spirit as we did. Receiving the Spirit is thematic in Luke-Acts. starts in the very beginning of Luke. The Holy Spirit comes upon people. They were regenerate, converted, and they were to be baptized. And then later, he, he, Peter was charged in Acts 11 with the sin of eating with Gentiles. And so he told the whole story to his Jewish friends and, and said, well, why wouldn't I eat with them? They received the Spirit like we did, and they accepted that. But then in Acts 2, or excuse me, Galatians 2, Peter loses his sense and won't eat with Gentiles again. It has to be rebuked by Paul. So that's that story. Now let's go on. Oh, yes, Peter. Quick question. Is this on? It's uh, on, it's on, it's Okay, on. quick question. Then they're justified and then they're baptized? Well, the, typically it's believers that are baptized. And we're going to talk, talk about some instances where you could try to say they weren't believers. But generally, somebody wouldn't want to undergo Christian baptism unless they were a believer because it's set in motion persecution. They're going to lose their friends, their family. They're going to be on the outs with the Jews, on the outs with the Romans. There was no good reason to be baptized other than you believed. Okay? It wasn't something like you, they did as a church liturgical practice. That's uh, Catholic and Lutheran and Methodist and Presbyterian and on and on and on and on. I've, I'm telling you right here, you can decide if you want to believe me, but I'm telling you, when it comes to things like baptism, church history will mislead you way more often than it'll help you. The doctrine of baptism hit the rocks and started being t- distorted and perverted immediately in the second century already. So all we really have is scripture. We don't have more than that. I don't care what it says in the Heidelberg Confession or the bigger catechism or the smaller catechism or in Westminster or in the Roman Catholic Church and the creeds and the council and the popes and all this. I don't care. I don't even care what Polycarp and 
Ignatius and uh, Irenaeus. And uh, I've read all of this. I, I've studied church history as much as most people that aren't church history professors. Every Just about every um, elective I took in seminary was church history because I love Dr. Travis so much. Always do primary source research. I've done that. And my conclusion is, if you want to understand baptism, Scripture alone. And don't get blinded by the steamroller of tradition. Scripture alone. Okay, uh, Julie. Yeah, well, no, it's not for us to hear you. It's for it to go on the tape. Uh, could you go back and explain a little more about the um, Mark sixteen sixteen? It does seem pretty straightforward that... It's it, not Scripture. That is a spurious addition to Scripture by later scribes that wasn't in the original manuscript. And you said that Luther held to the... Yeah, but that, you can't blame Luther. He didn't have the Alexandrian manuscripts or the or any of the other. All he had was Texas Receptus. But he believed by grace alone through faith alone that you know that so how did Luther he... believed in baptismal regeneration as I said primary source research and that's what I've done with Luther he really did believe in infant baptism he really did believe in baptismal regeneration and he really did use some of the most convoluted arguments that I've ever seen about anything to try to prove it Yes. Uh, just to help with that question, too, uh, Julie, the manuscripts that Luther would have had w- with him at the time would have been about eight. And so the Texas Receptus was really built on eight manuscripts. In fact, in Revelation, they didn't have the ending of it, so they had to back translate into the Latin. So <clears throat> what's interesting now is we have 5,000 manuscripts to choose from. So think about how much better off we really are. And the point that Bob is making is that the best texts, like the Alexandrian, and the um, Western texts, they don't have. They, they they clearly show that after Matthew 16, is it verse 16? Uh, Mark, you mean. I'm sorry, Mark 16, verse I 16. I think 8 is the last one. Or 8, verse oh, 8. Yeah, after that, it's it's that's it. That's the ending that if he If you had. look at your Basically Bible, has the resurrection. a bracket in there with a footnote. Yeah, it should be um, with the, yeah, verse 8. Yeah, right there. The verse See the eight. bracket? So what he wanted to do was leave off with the resurrection. That's what he did. Yeah. Now, now, here's the point. I can't blame Luther for using that passage. He who believes and is baptized is safe. But if you use our logic that we taught here, you'd have to conclude that both belief and baptism were necessary. And that's the conclusion that Luther came to. And I don't blame him one bit for using that passage. Now, that doesn't imply infants though there's the kicker okay even if you accept some of these passages that sort of might imply baptismal regeneration which I don't believe in you don't have infants yes uh, Jim I grew up in the uh, church of Christ and they have baptismal regeneration but it's adults only Mm-hmm. And they also believe that since it's in essence your act that's saving yourself, you can also fall from grace, which is the flip side of the coin. So how many times did you have to get baptized? Depends on how many times you sinned. <laughs> I'd look like a prune back. <laughs> I remember. Depends how sensitive your conscience is about your sin. Now, 
let's just go forward in some of these things in Acts. So this is how I want to teach this Sunday school class. I have no compelling interest in whether I get through my PowerPoint. The goal is we have discussion and that we do binding and loosing biblically. Now, on Acts 10, 48, they were baptized. That was the household of Cornelius who believed. Acts 16, 14. I love this narrative. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. That would be a God-fearer, sort of like uh, household of Cornelius, was listening. And the Lord, look at this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's why we preach the gospel. How do we know when God's going to open somebody's heart? A lot of hard-hearted sinners, which was everybody, are converted when God opens their heart and they realize, that's what happened to me. Well, I'm an enemy of the gospel and I'm going to hell. And suddenly I knew that was true unless I repented. So here's Lydia. She ends up with a very important role in the Philippi. And then it says in verse 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so Luke was with Paul evidently from the language here, us, and it says Lydia and her household were baptized. Now, here's one where it doesn't specify the age of those in the household. But we know how they use the term elsewhere in Acts because Cornelius' household, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. They believed they were baptized. There's nowhere where it implies that this is uh, infants. Okay? You'd be reading that into the text not reading it from the text. But this is the one incident where it doesn't specify anything more than what it says here. But in the bigger context of Acts, I would easily come to the conclusion that Paul did not baptize unbelievers. Now, I fully realize that Luther claims that infants are believers. And uh, when we do radio, we'll cite him to that end. Uh, Dan, he's the mic, whoever has it. Yeah, Bob, I we're going to get into a little bit of the history, like during Luther's time, uh, the political structure of things, how um, infant baptism, you know, there, there's such a, um, a strength of, you know, especially the Reformation causing the split between the Protestants and the Catholics and how mm-hmm. um, for, for almost military purposes, too, it was important to build up your side and so to have infant baptism... Maybe that, that's one reason uh, Luther wanted to continue into Get everybody baptism. in the full. Yeah. Now, what's, in, what's interesting to me, and, and, and uh, well, I want to talk about this on the radio, Luther argues, he says, I was baptized as an infant, and I have the Holy Spirit, therefore being baptized 
imparts the Holy Spirit. But he'd been baptized as a Roman Catholic, and he counted that as valid. Okay? I'm just telling you the way it was. And then people were concerned about the salvation of their children, and they wanted to know their kids are saved. So they baptized them, and then Luther said, if you baptize your infants, they're regenerate, they're believers, they have the Holy Spirit, and they, they're saved. Now, when, on the radio, when we get to this, I will show that his biblical support is pathetic. Like total scripture twisting. And it's not to be taught. It's, yeah, you want to pass the mic back? Bob, how did, did Luther ever have to answer to the fact of repentance for, for babies? How did, how did he answer that? As far Repentance. as in, infants, infants, yeah. He, he has some very creative ways. <laughs> John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Therefore, babies have the Holy Spirit. And so anything you could say, uh, I don't think he would be too concerned about repentance, but he would about faith and regeneration and receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've got, I read some more after I printed this stuff that I got all marked up. If this is what he taught, I didn't make this up. And uh, scriptural arguments aren't, are unscriptural and absurd. But Luther was a very uh, volatile guy as far as fighting bad things. And if you read this material, he's talking about the Anabaptists, the fanatics, the sectarians, and basically anybody who had left Rome and wasn't Lutheran, so to speak. And he really did not have any respect for Anabaptists. And so a lot of times you see things developing because of reacting to something rather than giving a sound biblical argument. Now, Luther's capable of a sound biblical argument. He knew the scripture amazingly well. Uh, he spent his whole lifetime studying it. But he wasn't going to give up infant baptism on any regard because he'd become a fanatic, a sectarian, or an Anabaptist. He wasn't going to do that. So his Roman Catholic baptism, as far as he is concerned, was when he was regenerate. There you go. <laughs> Okay, church history will mislead you faster than just about anything. I'd just like to make a comment on the word household okay. that we've, we've been talking about here. Um, very often in Paul's writings later, he refers to the household of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so may it not be that he was, when Luke was writing this, was also referring to the household of faith? Well, in this case, I think the context would say it would be the household, the people living in that house. But I do believe, we'll go forward and we'll see that a lot of times it does say they believed. It certainly did with Cornelius. Um, Acts 16, 32. It says in Acts 16, 32, and they spoke to the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Verse 33, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he 
was baptized, he and all his household. Verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them, rejoicing greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Okay, and you'll see this is the pattern. Cornelius, uh, I didn't look at the context of who, who he is here that was converted. But are we to assume, we got one case where it doesn't specify, are we going to assume the case of Lydia, she had infants? There's no grammatical or contextual reason to make that assumption. Uh, use the mic, please. <clears throat> I've got a MacArthur Study Bible, and when it talks about household, it's saying not just his family, but servants and guests that were present in the household at the time that the message was given and who could comprehend yeah, what was being very well of all believed. Now let's go to Acts 18.8. Okay. Acts 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. But notice the households believed. Okay, so we have neither command nor uh, descriptive passage for infant baptism. It's just totally absent from the scriptures. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, I walked in late. If if you had already covered this, I apologize. But um, when we were, a group of us were in Israel, we were on the south side of the temple talking about Acts chapter 2. Um, all the people were coming up, the Jews from the diaspora or whatever, uh-huh. were all coming up there, and they were all being baptized. So there's a, there's a clear tradition of baptism mm-hmm. uh, in the, all these mikvah pools. Did the Jews ever even think of baptizing babies? I don't think so. Well, Was that part it, of it, the tradition? They had their washings and what have you, but this just is not in the scriptures, in church history, not the scripture. Yeah, and that's, well, what And people are fearful. People want their children to be Christian. And they'll go to great lengths to try to say they are. Okay, or whatever. I remember in the 80s, there was a family that was converted Okay, and I used to go to a home Bible study with them. And they had a little girl who was born, and her name was Megan. And all of the relatives were Lutheran on both sides of the family and demanded that Megan be baptized. And they said, no, we will not do that. It's not biblical. And so we won't. And so they jokingly called her Megan the Pagan. I kid you not. And we have to have the faith and obedience and courage to do what God said and not let religious tradition rule over us. So I applauded that family. Because if they went along with this just to get their Lutheran friends off of their back, they'd be reinforcing in the minds of these lost Lutherans that they were actually saved by baptism. 
I mentioned earlier before we started that my dear friend, um, Oral Steinkamp, who is a retired pastor uh, and listens to our audios, said to me on the phone, well, you talk about Luther a lot in your radio in Galatians and you quote him. He says, I want you to know something. When I grew up on the farm from, this is from near Renville, Minnesota, my friends were all Lutheran. He became, as a teenager, he became a born-again Christian and ended up in Vietnam during the war as a Bible college teacher, Dr. Steinkamp did. But anyhow, he said they were all believing they were Christian because they were baptized as babies. One and all. And he says, I don't think a lot of those people were Christians any more than I was. That's what Oral said. So he kind of gently said, if you're going to teach people the Lutheran view on justification, you better deal with what you don't agree with, too. And that's why I'm doing this, okay? Because if you find the idea that you're baptized as a baby as grounds for assurance of salvation, and the Bible never commands that, isn't that a problem? I think it's a problem. Yes, Dan, right behind you, Ryan. Um, I, ju- I, I come from a Catholic background, and all of my, my three boys that are older now, uh, well, we have several grandchildren, and every single one of them, uh, we have six grandkids, all six of them were baptized within a week of being born because they've, they're so superstitious that they're afraid if the child dies before he's baptized, they're going to hell. Oh, I know. That's what the issue was with this Megan. Right. Uh, but where did that belief come from? You had a good point, superstition. Right. It didn't the, come the from stoichia, Scripture. stoichia, as you call it, the stoichia, the... Yeah, yeah. The it comes to... according, yeah, according to the, the philosophy and tradition, according to the stoichia, not according to Christ, Colossians 2.8. Yes. I just wanted to comment on the Lutheran church that we came from. They They taught that, uh, infant baptism washed away your sin nature. Yeah, it delivers you from the sin of Adam. <laughs> yes. Is what's taught, yes. And also, I believe that Luther also mentions that. Could, could I also ask you to comment on R.C. Sproul's position on infant baptism? Okay. I've heard it, but it's it's hard to follow. <laughs> okay. Uh, R.C. Sproul would be following Westminster Confession. Is that correct? I think so. Okay. By following the West, oh, here, uh, Norm wants the mic. By following the Westminster Confession, one of the distinctive things about Reformed theology that not all of Reformed people believe in infant baptism, but those who do would create this link between baptism and circumcision. Okay? And so, in as much as in the Old Testament, as they say, the Old Testament church, because they're replacement theologians, circumcision was a sign of the covenant, which was done with male infants. So the replacement for that is infant baptism, and it would be a sign of entering the covenant. Now, however, depending on your confession and your tradition, many times they will say, that doesn't imply baptismal regeneration. And they, they would say that there's a halfway covenant. In other words, you get halfway into the church. 
and then and then halfway you await signs of regeneration and and depending on the particular application of this if there are no signs of regeneration sometimes they'll be banned from communion or serving in the church or whatever but they can still go to church because they're part of the household so to speak but not fully regenerate so Reformed is different than Lutheran in that regard, because Lutheran says infants are baptized, infants believe, infants are filled with the Spirit, infants are regenerated. That's what they say. Well, that's what Luther said. Yes, Norm. Yeah, I was going to bring up the uh, idea of circumcision as well. I I do know one Reformed church that their, their belief is this halfway, and it's very similar to what we would say, uh, dedication of infants, you know, uh-huh. where they, they pray for them and so forth. And, uh, but I, they've definitely told me it is not baptismal regeneration. Right. Yeah. That reform would not say that, but Lutheran yeah. would. Yeah. <clears throat> now, Alistair Begg, I, I have somewhere on one of my hard drives, Alistair Begg refuting that idea, even what you just said, like dedication. And it's a brilliant, Alistair Begg is a Baptist. Okay, and he did a great job of refuting that very respectfully, I would have to say. And um, but it just doesn't add up to biblical. Uh, Eric has something to say. I was just going to mention the verse that a lot of the Reformed theologians use is out of Colossians two, and you can re- look at this. It's Colossians two eleven, where there seems to be a link between circumcision and baptism, but notice it says in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, the key to that whole verse, because it goes on to talk about baptism, but notice the circumcision that's being referred to by Paul is the one without hands. Well, this is the circumcision of the heart, the regeneration by the Spirit that was promised as early on as Deuteronomy and is reiterated in the prophets like Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. So. The problem is, is they're trying to link a circumcision that the Holy Spirit alone does via regeneration to a physical circumcision that man does. Well, what's interesting is every time you see in the scriptures something done by hands, that's something sinful that men do. So this is a circumcision without hands. Therefore, it's something that only it's God can do. It's a work on the inside. Amen. Exactly right. So. Yes. Yep. Okay. And I... Um, well, let me get a few more Acts verses in here. I, like I said, I, I'm, I want the discussion. Okay, so if I don't, if I'm still on this verse again the next time I teach, I'm not going to cry. I promise I won't cry. Okay, now here's some more Acts. So we saw in 16:34, having believed in God with His household. So this was believers. 18.8, Acts 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so, you don't have an ordo salutis necessarily to be discovered in Acts, what I mean order of salvation, or what happens before, before, before. But if there is a pattern, it's that you believe and are baptized. And Peter preached, repent and believe, and so on. So you turn to God, you believe the gospel, and are baptized. And baptism was by immersion. We saw, remember, 
the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip went down into the water. And even that could be turned into something that was lesser than we'd want it to be. I brought show and tell today. If you watched Hannity the other night, he had Rick Warren on. I, the person who I met out in California was able to talk to about the gospel, but he's got a new 40-day program, 40 days, the Daniel plan, 40 days to a healthier life. And he was telling this story on Hannity that they were baptizing 850 people, and he was doing it. And he says, these people... I'm fat, the people I'm baptizing are fat. we got to do something about this. This is Rick Warren, anyhow. He's always solving a problem. And so they went on 40 days of whatever to lose weight. No, they had a doctor on Hannity, and and they came up with a plan. Now, uh, there's a problem there that goes back to one of the earlier lectures on this topic. And that is defining the church. My main beef with Rick Warren is that he takes the community, Lake Forest, California, looks at Saddleback Sam, and incorporates the entire community as much as possible into the church. And baptism was one of his 101, 102, 103 schemes that you needed really to be baptized. And he's very strong on that. So he's very good at convincing people to get down there in the water. How many of them are regenerate, I don't know. But when I was there, I asked him to preach Christ, which is the one thing he doesn't do. Yes. Um, getting back to this household again. Yeah. Um, I guess the takeaway I'm getting from our discussion on that is that you read this one verse by itself, and it talks about household. We have no way of knowing what is included in the household. It could be infants. It could no. be unbelievers. So I or think we use there was any infants, it doesn't yeah. say. So we have to use the principle of of interpreting the more the less clear scriptures with other scriptures that are very clear and define yeah. who yeah. who is actually actually being baptized when it right. names people. And the times when it does specify it says they believed. Yeah. If you can find one case where it doesn't specify, you don't suddenly discover infant baptism. I would argue this, just on prima facie evidence. Had the Roman Catholic Church not been baptizing infants for centuries, nobody would be doing it, and Luther wouldn't have had his position. You could rightly argue this came right from Rome. He claimed he he was baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. And he now has the Holy Spirit, and he makes that cause and effect. So that's from primary source, Luther. And as you said, Norm, reform has a different thing. But, this re- but it's all grounded in replacement theology. Okay, and, and most of the errors that I would call error, and they feel free to rebuke me on this, um, in reform theology come from replacement theology. Baptizing babies. Uh, baptism replaces circumcision. That's why they do that. The Puritan Sabbath, what's that? Not only do you have to keep Sabbath, you, although you shift it to Sunday, you have to keep it after the manner of the Jews. 
that comes from replacement theology. Sunday replaces Saturday, but we keep the Jewish Sabbath. Amillennialism. God has no promises to the Jews. We're the Jews. We're Israel. And the church is the new Israel, so there's no point in God keeping his promises to the patriarchs. Replacement theology. So every error, in my opinion, that would cause me as a person to not be able to be one with Reformed theology in many important cases, all comes from the same source. Israel is nothing and has no place in Bible prophecy. There are no promises given to Israel. They're all given to the church. And there we go. Now, try, maybe one of you is is really good at this. I know several people who've done this around the country that have contacted me. Try to convince a Reformed pastor that the Puritan Sabbath is sin and that it comes from the demons. They won't listen. And in the end, they, they invoke their own authority. I'm the covenant head of the church. You either submit to me or leave. Because they don't have a biblical argument. Now, here's my question, my dear Reformed and Lutheran friends, and I have them, Okay. Why do you say sola scriptura when you refuse to practice it? Why, if, you're script, if you're teaching a sola scriptura, why won't you let anybody challenge it? And why don't you go with the biblical evidence? I, I want to do that. If I don't do that, I'm a horrible hypocrite. And don't listen to me. If I were to do that, we've got to go with what the scripture says. Church history can't force us to be unbiblical. We don't have to submit to church history. We submit to scripture. Binding and loosing doesn't come from church history. It comes from scripture. Now, would we like to... Well, it would be very handy if it were true. Every parent is worried about their kids, and for good reason. Okay, it's not an easy job raising children. I've already done it. Or grandchildren. I've already done that. But it's one that God gives us, and there's a lot of sorrows involved. But if you could baptize a baby, and that baby filled with the Holy Spirit, regenerate on the way to heaven, then the rest of it you can live with. But can we do that? I don't think we can do it, because it's not biblical. I, and frankly, I don't want my children to be in the church pretending to be Christian when they're not. Right now, our daughter is, God bless her, serving the Lord, and it's a great joy to us. But there was a time where she wasn't and went through a lot of sorrows and what have you. There's no magical thing like baptizing a baby. It's going to make all our kids Christian. It doesn't work in the long run anyhow. They'll still go do what they want to do. The gospel is what makes people Christian. (laughs) We've got to do that. Okay, let me see what we can do here. Oh, boy. Five more minutes. Um, eighteen eight. I did that. They were believing and being baptized. Nineteen two. Interesting. Acts nineteen in Ephesus. There were some disciples of John the Baptist there, and Paul comes to them and says, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said to him, "No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit." Isn't that interesting? And he said, into what then were you baptized? 
And they said, in John's baptism. So they'd been baptized, but they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and, and, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, was this spirit baptism or water baptism? Anybody have an opinion? What do you think? Eric, what do you think? It could be both. I think uh, John the Baptist's baptism, that, uh, it was valid. God ordained it. But uh, let's think about this. One of the issues that Luther really got on was rebaptism. He was just deathly against rebaptism because that's what the Anabaptists required, which is what that word means, Anabaptists, rebaptized. And you've got to say, they were severely persecuted. There's pictures in church history of the end of a dock and church authorities throwing the Anabaptists in and holding them down underwater. If you want to be baptized, okay, fine, we'll baptize you, and they drown them. You know, things were not very civil back in those days. Really bad. But Luther was just totally abhorred by the idea of the rebaptism. It comes up today, and I frankly haven't decided what's appropriate binding and loosing. Do we require that? If somebody says, now I believe I was baptized as an infant, but I believe now I'm satisfied with that. Okay, I, I, it's hard to know what to say. This passage here would be the closest one. It appears to me they were rebaptized. But I've personally not wanted to make that a church law, though some Baptist churches will. Anybody want to comment on that? Uh, you want to hand that to, to Eric? You know, about, about the programmatic verse in Acts 1-8 where the apostles are going to be those who are the witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then into the yeah. ends of the earth. And the significance then is that when you see the gospel spread to these areas, notice they may have believed, but they don't have the Holy Spirit one of the issues is that at the apostolic teaching and the apostolic hands, the Holy Spirit is dispensed. And that's oh. why, like you're pointing out, an order salutis is really very difficult. And one, yeah. one of the big issues as well with baptism is identity. Um, you look at, for instance, Romans chapter 6, Paul's always talking about the fact that we're with Christ. So we're dead with him in baptism, but the resurrection to newness of life is also this idea of identity. So baptism is about identity. Um, we see that in 1 Corinthians 10, where you have the people of God are baptized through the Red Sea. So why is Jesus baptized? Because he identifies with the people. Amen. And um, the reason I'm mentioning that is John the Baptist says, look, I baptize you in water, but there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy of untying. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So that's the greater. That's the greater the baptism. The lesser to greater argument, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is greater. Amen. That's exactly right. Okay. And faith is necessary. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Romans 6 because I'd feel sad if I didn't even do one new slide. <laughs> the other passage I have here, by the way, is Acts 19. No, 19, no excuse me. Acts 22. Excuse me. Acts 22. 13 through 16 about Paul being baptized. We already mentioned that in Acts 9, but he's telling the story 
22:16, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name. Now, that doesn't imply baptism or regeneration, but one of the things baptism symbolized was the washing away of sins. That's the cleansing of them. And I'm going to do, eventually, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So you want to study that ahead of time. I don't know when I'll do it, because I didn't get into this burial and resurrection, so I'll do that next time. But here's what this Eric just alluded to at Romans 6, 3 through 4, and we'll start here next time. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. I will show you the next time it's my turn to teach Sunday school that the water symbolizes death and that coming up out of the water symbolizes new life through the resurrection. There are a lot of passages that say that, including the one First Corinthians 10. And so we want to do that, and then I want to begin, when we get a chance, to go to a very interesting and disputed passage, my favorite kind, uh, 1 Peter three eighteen to 22. So think about whatever study you want to do. That's where Jesus goes and preaches to imprisoned spirits. Oh, yeah. Now, that is sandwiched by a couple of very important things, one of which is the gospel. Eric and I use that when we preach the gospel on Sunday mornings. Christ died for sins, the once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, 3.18a. And then Noah and the water and how Noah symbolizes baptism. And it's one of the proof texts for baptismal regeneration. But I think when we see... But it does mean it's even more exciting. Okay? What is the issue with Noah? And what is the issue with baptism? And was it, what, what's the water all about? And what's being saved out through and out of water all about? There's nothing more exciting than what the Bible does mean. Absolutely. It's exciting. And it has all these implications and applications. You throw church history, it's like throwing a bunch of dirt and... Uh, Smoke and obscuring everything to the point where you can't possibly imagine what it really does mean and you can't even see it. You're just blinded. My dear Lutheran friends, try taking off the blinders. It's way better. It's way more exciting. I don't for one minute believe that if we do a practice that God didn't ordain, baptize babies, and a, and a, and a non-baptized infant in a believing family dies at a young age, that God's going to send that person to hell because we failed to baptize them. Do you really believe that? With no scripture, no word from God, just believe that because of being superstitious? I would say repent of your superstition and give God the glory. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he believed. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to be kind and patient and trusting 
but nevertheless be firm about believing only what the scripture does say and doing so forthrightly and without apology. In Jesus' name, amen.